Good morning. My name is Holly Yamada. Our scripture reading this morning is in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 31 through 45. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus said, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant. With James and John, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I want to say this word right at the beginning. Uh, Ken, uh, I am so glad that you are here. And... For, for me, it is a deeply moving, especially this week, opportunity to have Ken Miedema with, with us. And I'll tell you why. Um, I was already involved going into the city, doing things at Cabrini Green and, and wanting to live for Jesus in, uh, in the places where people didn't usually go. When someone gave me, I don't remember, 1978 or 1979, uh, not a CD, I don't think they were out, a cassette tape, I don't think it was 8-track, um, of, of Ken Meadham is called Kingdom in the Streets. I don't think it was the best-selling one, as, as he, Ken has pointed out to me, because I've shared this with him. And yet what I saw there was that when Jesus came, he was, the Bible says he was and is, uh, the eternal Son of God, who is willing to come and bring the rule, the compassion and justice of God, into the places where it was so desperately needed. He brought the kingdom of God, the kingdom to the streets. 
And I, I, my whole thinking, and you've heard me talk about this, my whole thinking about what a church is to be and what it means to follow Jesus began to be shaped. I'd already seen it, but, but that CD, or not that album that I received, began shaping, giving me a theology in which to think about that. And, and today you're going to see that it shapes this message too. I hadn't known that this was going to happen, but it shapes this message too. Because what we learn there is that we, we have the greatest greatness for the kingdom of God. Our, our lives have the greatest impact when we're willing to go out and simply to use whatever God has given us to serve other people. Uh, you probably heard that, but I don't know if it, it, it's got to get deep inside of our hearts. Uh, this is quite a week to think about that because for the church, of course, both globally and, and nearby, uh, new leadership has been put into place. Uh, sitting right on the front row, we have a couple of people from Argentina. A good week for Argentina. Um, this week, uh, uh, Cardinal uh, Bergoglio uh, is now uh, Pope uh, Francis, elected by the College of Cardinals. Uh, he has a small job, <laughs> giving leadership to just uh, 1.2 billion people, that's all. We must be in prayer for him. Um, in our own local community, Fuller Theological Seminary, right across the street, has announced a new president, uh, Mark Laberton. He is going to be giving leadership to just a, a little bit fewer than 1.2 billion people, but it's a significant job and I think a great, great appointment, and we must pray for him as well. Uh, because what you hear about, and I was on the search committee uh, for the president of the Fuller, what you hear about is with the world changing, uh, we have to change the way we train the leaders for the church. So it's going to take some, some wise leadership to bring about that change. And when you read the papers about the appointment, the election of a new pope, what you keep seeing is how is he going to bring about change in a world in which change is so obviously needed? And when we think about how we bring about change, we usually think about it's done with carrying a sword or, you know, might, power, somehow, the position that you have. Or sometimes we think it's going to be done by advertising, put up billboards. <laughs> we might, uh, might do it that way. Or by political clout, somehow. And yet, consistently, when you look in the Bible... Uh, we find that, that God's word, and in particular the person of Jesus, says it's done by carrying a towel. I know that doesn't mean much to us, but in his day, uh, a towel like this would have been carried by, by only a slave or a servant who was given the responsibility of washing feet. Not a great job now if we had it, not a great job back then. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did just before he was going to give his life for us. He said that the way you have a great impact in this world is to be willing to go out and be a slave, a, a servant to all. We bring about the change. He says, not through the exercise of clout for our own benefit, but by the willingness to look and say, how can I use whatever God has given me to serve those he brings across my path. That's, that's what the Bible says. Now, what do people most want change about? Have you thought about that? As, as people keep saying we need change, what are the most... Do you know what the two things that people say? And it's, uh, surveys taken about this. It's always the same two things that rise to the top. Uh, people want happiness and success. 
happiness and success. And, and rightly understood, that is a, a good, both of those are good human longings. Uh, happiness is not just a temporary ha-ha kind of experience, but, but if we think of happiness as being uh, that deep inner contentment, the deep inner satisfaction, what the Jewish people called shalom. It's, it's a longing God's created us to have. And if we think of success not just as what, where I get my own way, but rather of, as really having my life count, having a reason for living, uh, establishing something that lasts, being productive. I just want you to know that as we come this week to the text that Holly read, Mark chapter 10, Jesus said that he came to bring about change in this world. He's going to bring God's rule into this world. And two of the things that will come about, he says, will be the opportunity at last to find that lasting happiness and the kind of success that truly builds something that matters and that lasts. Uh, the first we saw last, was last week uh, with the rich young ruler. Because really what he said when he came to Jesus was, how can I find the life I was made for? Eternal life, not just life that goes on and on and on. But, you know, life uh, that is the life God created. How can I find the life God made me to have? And Jesus says it's not hard. You just have to put God first, first commandment. Just give away everything. Come and follow me and you'll find it. He couldn't do it. But Jesus was saying, I'm the one who can give it. And today we come back to that second deep longing. How can I have a life that really matters? And how can my life be something that counts in this world? And Jesus, in his usual way of, of having a overturning ways of the way the world thinks about it, he, he said, well, the way that you can have your life really count is not just by exercise of power or having a big position, but it is by being willing to serve. That's what he said. It's a shocking countercultural teaching. I'll tell you, if you go over to a bookstore and get a leadership book, there aren't too many that say the way that you can really lead is simply by serving. The way that you have a life that is the most successful in this world is that you focus all of your attention on service. So today, that's, I want us to look at it. You're going to be with me here? We're going to go through this as quickly as possible because we're in the Lenten season. And as we are in that journey, we have been looking at the journey Jesus took toward the cross. And beginning with Mark chapter 8, as we began this series... Do you remember he said several times, I'm going to tell you why I have come, where this journey is going. So I'll just go back over it with you. I, I've called this story, um, you know, I've, heard, I've said this before, the paradoxical topography of the kingdom of God. I use that phrase so that you know I've been to school a lot. <laughs> the paradoxical topography of the kingdom of God. Topography. The way that God looks at the landscape of this world is not the way you and I usually look at it. In his kingdom, the thing that seems to be high is low. And the one who seems to be low is the one who is high. The way up is down. So let's see how it develops. Mark chapter 8. Every Bible in front of you. First time. For the first time, plainly, Jesus says, I'm, okay, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Uh, in verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must, and the must is there, he, the Son of Man has come, must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders, their chief priests and teachers of the law, 
and that the Son of Man must be killed, though after three days he's going to rise again. And even though, you know, in the very next verse, verse 32, even though Peter had just seen, said, we think you're the Messiah, when Jesus said this, Peter rebukes him. Jesus, uh, using the strongest language possible, he rebukes Jesus saying, you can't do that. Messiahs don't die. They think, don't, don't you know who he is? Don't you know that he, he knows what he's talking about? So Jesus rebukes him right back. Get behind me, Satan. And especially this phrase in verse 33. I want you to think about it. Peter, he says, you are not thinking the things of God. You're thinking the things of people, of men. You're not looking at the world the way God looks at the world. You're looking at the, way, at the world the way people look at the world. You have in mind not the concerns that God has. You have the same concerns that everybody else has. So with that kind of firm and plain talk by Jesus, surely they got it, right? Surely they got it. One chapter later, it's in that text that Pastor Carol and Pastor Scott spoke about, one chapter later, chapter 9, verse 31, we have Jesus uh, turning to them, and he said, for the second time, I'm going to tell you why I've come, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of people. They will kill him. So after three days, he will rise. Now, surely the disciples have gotten it the second time, right? Look at the very next verse, if you have that Bible in front of you. Uh, in verses 32 and 33, the disciples didn't understand. They couldn't see it, what Jesus meant. They were afraid to ask him about it. But when Jesus was in the house then with them, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet. Because on the road, they were arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. <sighs> so this time, Jesus says, don't you know that anybody who wants to be first must be willing to become last? And he uses a visual aid. Sometimes you need one of these so somebody remembers. All right, he takes a child and he puts him in front of them. And even though we think uh, of children as having great influence in the ancient world, you know, children were thought, they were valued but they were thought to have the least influence of anyone in the ancient world. It's much more like many Asian communities in our day where sometimes parents just really look forward to the time that they can become the matriarch and patriarch of the family. Because up till then, as children, you've always been serving. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But when you get to be the matriarch, the top of the family, then you'll be served. So that's the way their society was. That's the way the world of Jesus was. Those who were the oldest in the family were the ones who were served. The least influence would have been the children. But Jesus takes a child and puts a child in the midst and says, unless you become like this child, the one who serves, you won't even see the kingdom of God. And then the one who would have been the most powerful, the rich ruler in the text we looked at last week, wanted life all he had to do was follow Jesus and give up everything else. And, and he was left behind, do you see? And so Jesus summarizes it in the verse that Holly read at the beginning. Verse 31. Don't you know that the first will be last and the last will be first? And so the one viewed as the last, the child, had been welcomed. The one viewed as first was turned away. Which brings us to the third time Jesus says, so surely they've gotten it. Look at what happens in verse 32. Let me get there to that verse. See, I usually memorize these things. Here we go. So they were on their way up to Jerusalem. 
Jesus was leading the way. The disciples were astonished. Those followed, they were afraid. So again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. So with more detail, we are going to Jerusalem, he said. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. Here's what's going to happen. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. So after three days, he will rise again. They've got it, don't they? Could anybody say it more clearly? Look at the very next verse. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What a prayer. All right, come on, folks at LAC. We pray that way, don't we? God, I'm here. I'm listening to this sermon. I want you to give me whatever I ask for being here. What a prayer that they have. I imagine, really, Jesus must have been a little bit exasperated when he said, what do you want me to do for you? And callously, they ask this one who has just said, I'm going, I've come to die. When you get there to Jerusalem, you really set up your, your kingdom there. Let one of us, the brothers, James and John, sit at your right and one of us sit at your left in your glory. By this, whatever he had said, they were sure that when he got to Jerusalem, he was going to set up a political kingdom and life had been hard for them following Jesus up to now. They hadn't gotten anything much out of this. And so now when you get there, we want to have the best positions, the vice presidential positions. Uh, what would Jesus say? You don't know what you're asking. So let me ask you this. If you're going to be close to me, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism? Which means, are you, can you live the kind of life I'm going to be living? Which, as we know, is going to be his own suffering and death. And he, so glibly they say, we can. And Jesus says, you will. I guess one of the, the matters that's always encouraging for me is these two disciples became faithful followers of Jesus. He doesn't give up on us. Any hallelujahs there? He doesn't give up on us. I'm so thankful for that because I, I can see myself in these men. I can see myself here. He says, you will. But you're not even, you're not even thinking the way God thinks. There's just not even a, a way to give an answer to this. You are thinking the way people think. Not the way God thinks about things. And, and, and the other ten become indignant. You know why? Because they'd gotten to him first. Uh, they'd read the book saying, if you're going to get a leadership role, you've got to be fast. You've got to be assertive. You've got to grab that, that chance when you were able to get... They'd gotten there first. So now they've gotten the two best positions. What's left? We, no vice presidencies left. The best for us are positions 3 through 12. Uh, we get at best director level positions, you know. We don't get to be the, those. That's what they're thinking. And that brings us to what I call the hammer blow of the Gospel of Mark. Take this to heart. Take this to heart. He let them know how the greatest accomplishment in history is going to be brought about. He let them know 
how their own eternal life is going to be accomplished. So he calls his followers together, chapter 10, verse 42, and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers in the world, they use their authority to lord it over people for their own benefit. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all four Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and even to give His life as a ransom for the many. And you know, it wasn't just empty words for Jesus. Immediately He heads toward Jerusalem. On His way there, He meets a blind man named Bartimaeus, asks him the very same question he'd asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And he just said, Rabbi, I want to see. He opens his eyes, he sees, and now he, different from the rich young ruler, follows Jesus closely toward Jerusalem and toward his death. And then Jesus, in the text we'll look at next week, enters into Jerusalem, where knowingly he serves us to the point of his death. And he tells us that if we're going to walk close to him, uh, we need to go out where people's lives are hurting and be willing to serve, even if they've gotten themselves into that mess. Even if we say it's their own fault, they belong to the wrong political party, they're lazy, whatever we say, uh, we go in and we say we will serve. And what I see Jesus calling us to is a whole new way of life. I told you when I, when I heard Ken singing about these things, it began a whole new way of life. That if God gives us, where God gives us opportunities to have influence, intentionally we grab hold of that influence and use it to serve others and be a blessing to them. So a new way of life, the way that the Creator made us to live. I have two convictions, I'll give them to you. So a life of service is not about us lording it over others. But it's about the intentional use of influence or whatever God gives us to bless others. A whole way of life, every day of our lives, using whatever God gives us to bring blessing to others. And second, I just want to say that I think this kind of life, a life of service, is the life that brings both of those things human beings long for, lasting happiness and true lasting success. So I've got to say a word, just a a quick word, about what I call a theology of power. Um, Sometimes God entrusts to us uh, positions where there's real authority. And many times when people have talked about serving, they think, oh, no, no, I'll withdraw from that because uh, I'll, I'll just you know, sort of be a carpet and let people walk over me. Do you notice that Jesus never lived that way? Um, when Peter rebuked him and was wrong, Jesus rebuked him back. He, he, didn't get, he, he utilized his authority. Uh, when, when there were problems and they were in the boat and the storm came up, he used his authority to bring blessing to those who were there. So it's not as if we act like, oh, no, no, no Christian could ever be in a place of authority. No, no we don't make those hard decisions. A theology of power to me is that power and authority, 
excuse me, <coughs> is a stewardship. I better say that again because it is authority and power is a stewardship. Uh, we are put into places where it is a gift given. But in that stewardship, it can be used for ourselves. It, it can be used to do damage, and to harm those around us. It can be used to further injustice. Or intentionally, we can use whatever God gives us and say, Lord, how can I further your justice, your compassion? How can I personally bring some of your mercy to those now who have been brought under my care? Brothers and sisters, I know I don't do this well, but it's the longing of my heart that in the role of pastor God has given me here, that it will be a role I use to serve, not to further my own kingdom, and, and if, if you think, well, this is a great message for the Pope, because he has 1.2 billion people under him. Well, this is a great message for the President. I tell you, it is a message for every one of us. Uh, listen, God has given all of us influence. Uh, in a family, yes, there are positions of influence, uh, like the the, the position of a parent has huge influence. But any of us who have been children in a family, you know, you and I have great influence as children in a family too, don't we? We can either make uh, our homes uh, a heaven or a hell. And we know, we learn how to do it, don't we? I mean, in our marriages or in our families, we know how to get on one another's nerves. We don't even have to think about it. Some of you are nodding. You know what I'm, I, I'm trying to say. How can I make sure that all of you know that this is true? You know how a brother and sister, when they get going at it, you just know that if you say this, she's going to do that. And so you say this. In a marriage, they're destroyed this way. You know that if you just sort of get this look on your face, that'll just drive her up the wall. So you get mad. And you get that look on your face. And yes, it drives her up the wall. But on the other side, she knows how to get at you as well. Listen to me. We are to accept the fact that we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1 and 2, being made in the image of God, gave, God gave to us all authority. Read it. To rule over, to manage, to care for the universe that God has made. He's given us authority. He gave us the ability to name things. When you name things, you have authority over those things. So that's a part of being human. It's a gift, a stewardship given to us. But if we use it the way that a fallen world does, we use it only to our own benefit instead of looking to the interests of others as greater than our own. And Jesus is declaring that every moment of our lives, we have to think about, Lord, as I go out into this world where so many people are hurt and so many people are broken. How can I use the words that you've given to me? How can I use whatever possessions you've given to me? How can I use whatever influence, whatever influence it is to be a blessing and an encouragement instead of to tear down? Uh, in our homes, parents, what would happen if you and I intentionally, intentionally use the enormous influence we have over our children's life, not just to try to make them look more successful or, or, or to control them, 
but actually to have them flourish. And if you look back and say, I haven't done that well, I'll tell you, going and seeking forgiveness and saying, let's start again, is the beginning of reconciliation and a new life. My point, I made it a moment ago, I, I feel like each member of a family has choices to make about how to use our influence. We can use our words or actions to encourage or to tear down. God's given us the power to do that. We, we can use what we do to, to destroy the peace or to make peace. And sometimes it's those little things. We can use the decisions that we make to make the whole family late. I remember in our family, sometimes we'd get mad at our dad who was very punctual. So we'd see him out there sitting in the car ready to go to church. My brother and I intentionally would go late. We can make a choice intentionally to get there on time to be a blessing. Again, you and I have power. We're made in the image of God. And the way of life that Jesus calls us to is one of carrying the towel and saying, how can I serve those you bring across my path? And I was talking with Jesse Oaks, our high school pastor, about this this week. And he said, Greg, this is a whole way of life. It's everything we do. So he started listening to some things. So I wrote them down. This affects the way I drive the car. Will we go driving the car? Somebody cuts us off. Are we going to have our own way? Or are we going to make sure that other driver does not get into my place? I tell you, I, this is one the Lord has to work on me. I, I thought Jesse was meddling with my life about, about that particular one. It, it has to do with the way we conduct our friendships. I mean, those little decisions sometimes. Uh, sometimes you just always, we're going to go to my restaurant. Uh, that new vegetarian restaurant down there. While you know that your friend only likes beef. You know. So, so, but you go to your place. It affects the workplace. Bosses. We have the ability to speak out to those under our care. To make sure they have just wages. We have the opportunity to keep looking that people under our leadership can flourish under our authority. Or the other side is we can just only look for more and more productivity. Workers, you know, we can either go into the workplace and just work as unto the Lord. Because that boss bothers us. But work as unto the Lord. And seek to make the work environment around you one more filled with the peace of God taking words of encouragement, taking in a smile sometimes. Do you see how this, this is a way of life? It's going to affect what we do in our neighborhood. If we go out of church today intentionally looking for opportunities to serve those who cross our paths, sometimes, like I said, with a smile or a word of encouragement, just think about the impact that we can have, and especially as we enter into a relationship, we begin to see real needs, and then we have to have hard decisions. Will I use my resources to bring blessing to that person, or will I hold on to it myself, the decision that the rich young ruler made? Jesus says, that's not the way the world thinks. Those who have leadership and influence in the world use their authority to, to gain clout for themselves. Not so with you. And I'm telling you, in that we find, according to Jesus, we find our lives. 
We, we find, if people are looking for happiness, we find joy. Did fi- Jesus find any joy in dying on the cross? Have you ever read Hebrews 12 too? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy, look at that, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down with his work complete. Do you see it? If people are saying, um, I want to find happiness in this world, Jesus responds by saying, it happens through being willing to serve. The greatest act in history was accomplished through service, and it brought Jesus joy to serve you and me. I'm looking out to see if you're happy about that. It brought him joy that he saw our need and he was willing to give our li- his life in our place. Uh, I've been reading about a new field of psychology. We have many psychologists that are here. It's called positive psychology. seems to affirm this. Psychologists in this field of study uh, have looked at all cultures to find out what brings people lasting happiness. And one of the findings is so interesting for me. It's in a series studied by two people, Brickman and Campbell. It's called Hedonic Adaptation, almost as bad as the paradoxical topography of the kingdom of God. They engaged in extensive research, and it showed definitively that people do not find lasting happiness through money, beauty, or fame. Bottom line is what they wrote. When people focus on doing things that bring them personal happiness or focus on getting things that bring them pleasure, they do not find lasting happiness. And they say it's true of people in every culture. Instead, what they say is that that will put us on what they call a hedonistic treadmill, on which we become addicted to pleasure. And each time we have to have a greater pleasure fix. It gets to be bigger and bigger. And here, quoting them again, the hedonic treadmill studies argue that the best way to increase happiness is to do acts of unselfish kindness. We find our lives to pour ourselves into the needs of people. So last week I pointed out that the life, the happiness that the rich young ruler wanted to have, Jesus says, it will be found in me. But you have to be willing to give up all that other stuff that you think you're finding it there. You're not going to find it there. Give that up. Follow me and you'll find your life. And today, we come back and we find that the other thing that people want to have, success, true greatness, is found not, well, it starts with the first command, but specifically in the second command of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And that love is demonstrated in the way Jesus did it, by intentionally serving those he brings across our paths. Let me give you this verse. Just before going to Jerusalem to die, Jesus said that he had come to give his life in service to us, to free us from our sin, shame, and guilt. And he wants you and me to follow him closely, And to do the same. Because he said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all.
If we will find the life and success that God has made for us to have, we must leave this place carrying a towel. Because in this uh, paradoxical topography of the kingdom of God, if you and I will see as God sees, the way up is down. to his glory. Amen.